We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. We are moving on to uh, Chapter 2 of Breshit Rabbah, of Genesis Rabbah. Uh, uh, um, you'll be encouraged to know that Chapter 2 begins the second verse of Genesis. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're at, we're past Breshit Bara Elohim at the Shemayim Bet's Arts. Maybe we should have a Zoom. You know what's funny is like I, I, um, I, I decided to, to do this class in the first place because um, I started last year to, I got in my head that I would write a series of children's books on like Torah stories. And I wrote uh, one for Bereshit. Um, and then I was going to, then I was going to do the next one on the Garden of Eden. And I started to like, you know, it was actually really challenging to write a good children's story about Genesis because I had to like, like make a whole narrative out of it. There had to be like conflict and character and things like that. There's not really any conflict or character in the opening of Genesis. So it was a challenge to do it. And, and, and then I started thinking about the Garden of Eden story and I said, well, like what's really happening here? And like, what, what should kids know about it? Um, because I, I don't love the the telling of the story that you know like um, you know Adam and Eve got the commandment from God they broke the commandment they got punished and everybody lived happily ever after like it just didn't and feel like but right, nobody lived happily ever after so it didn't feel like a good story so um, so I felt like okay well maybe Midrash has something and I started looking at Midrashim on that story and I was like ooh there's a lot here it's rich like maybe it would be good for me it will be motivation for me to study it myself in more depth if I had a class on it and I said well wait a minute if I'm going to have a class on Midrash um, I really ought to start not at the story of the Garden of Eden I should start <laughs> at the beginning of Genesis <laughs> Genetically yeah. um, formed. I had this, you know, I had this bright idea. Genesis. This brilliant, the Genesis of Genesis. I had this brilliant idea that I would start at the beginning of Genesis. It was just sort of moved through. We'll get eventually to the Garden of Eden. At this rate, I don't know. My kids are going to be in college, but I get to the Garden of Eden. The children's well, stories like are going to matter. One day, you know, since we're into this book now, we're committed to buying this book. I have a long contract, Rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to you. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so the, the second verse is um, so the first verse, of course, is Breshit Bara Elohim et Hashemayim et Aretz, which you know could be variously translated, but you know when God began to create the heavens and the earth, uh, or in the beginning, God uh, created the heavens and the earth. The second verse. Uh, Grammatically, uh, contextually, is really a parenthetical, right? Is because uh, the first three verses are really one sentence. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the second verse, the parenthetical, is 
the earth being unformed and void, uh, with darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovering upon the surface of the waters. Uh, and the, the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light, right? So that's the, that's the whole thought, right? Uh, but you could, you could read that as three separate sentences, as, as many of the traditional translations do. Like the King James translation, for instance, right? That uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Period, and the earth was astonishingly empty, as it's translated here. Uh, with uh, uh, astonishingly empty is is a translation of this phrase tohu vavohu, which um, no one really knows exactly what it means. Um, uh, the uh, Jewish Publication Society translation, which is in the time we translates it as uh, unformed and void. Um, uh, it, you know, it could mean like like uh, chaotic. Um, hard to know exactly what Tovavo means. It translates here as astonishingly empty. Uh, but I imagine that that's a space for Midrash to come in and say, what exactly is Tohu Vavohu? What does it mean that the earth was Tohu Vavohu? Um, and there was darkness upon the surface of the deep, uh, and the Spirit of God hovered upon the surface of the waters. So this reads this as one distinct sentence, not a parenthetical. Um, okay, so here we have the first Midrash. Uh, uh, picks up on the question of Ha'aretz, Haita tohu vavohu. The earth was astonishingly empty, or the earth was astonishingly empty. Why do you like that translation? Because it really emphasizes the empty and how unusual that. Yeah. That might be. Yeah, or like you know, indescribably empty, or something like that. You know, because I I remember being in like third grade or something like that, and in Jewish day school, and and asking my teachers, you know, like, you know, what was, what was there before the earth or what was there before creation? And they said nothing. Said so, so it was like, it was like, you know, blackness everywhere. It was like darkness everywhere. They said, no, because darkness hadn't been created yet. I said, so what was there? And they said nothing. And, and I was like, so what is that? And they said, we, we don't, we don't, we don't know. Humans can't comprehend nothingness. Right. So, so I like that, you know, astonishingly empty. Um, must have been a terrific student. <laughs> 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 to ask my teachers, I was um, it's astonishingly empty. It's sort of almost like saying, compared to what else there was, <laughs> nothing. Because it can't be so. It can't astonishing. It means it's it's more than everything else, right? Right. And we don't know what everything else. Is. I don't think it is a comparison, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so let's uh, let's dive into it. Um, uh, let's see who read last time. I was a lot. All right, Nancy. Read the Brechia opened his discourse on the Book of Genesis, citing the following verse: "Even a youth can be recognized by his deeds, whether his acts will be pure and just." I just, I just want to like reiterate from here. This you know, starts with Rabbi Brechia Patach. He opened up. Um, you know, this goes back to the idea that, that these are these are homiletical midrashim, right? That they would uh, they, they, these would be sermons, you know, on, on Shabbat morning. And one of the common methods of doing that was to open up 
with a verse that was seemingly totally unrelated to uh, to the verse that you're actually talking about and trying to connect the two together, right? So we're he's gonna we're gonna have to see how he's connecting this verse from Proverbs to um, the issue of the earth being uh, unformed and, and, and void. Rebrethia said, it is as the saying goes, and the thorn bush was still undeveloped, it already produced thorns. Similarly, this description of the earth's voidness in our verse is an omen for what the prophet was destined to prophesy about the earth in the future. I have seen the land, and behold, it was astonishingly empty. Jeremiah. So what's happening in that midrash? See how they relate. Okay. And how does a thorn bush undeveloped already produce thorns? <laughs> the thorn bush was still undeveloped and it already produced thorns. Yeah. So, okay. So, uh, let's look at that first verse, right? Even a youth can be recognized by his deeds. What is that suggesting? I don't think it, I think it means that anybody can do the right thing regardless of age. Sure, and you shouldn't discount somebody because they are too young to have that kind. Uh, okay, I, it also could mean the opposite thing, right? That uh, uh, that that uh, um, that a, that a, a, a wicked person um, could presumably be, you know, wicked from from you. You could recognize an evil person because of how they act as a child. Right? You could recognize a good person, right? Or you shouldn't necessarily discount a, a person, but you also can predict, right? This is going to be a good grown-up. This is going to be a bad grown-up. My wife and I are watching the Harry Potter movies now. Uh, we haven't read the books yet. I apparently, apparently that's a big scandal that, we, uh, that we're watching the movies before we've read the books. Uh, I did not realize that was so controversial, but apparently it is. Uh, but anyway, I mean, there's um, the, the big villain in the Harry Potter movies is a, is a dark wizard named Voldemort. And uh, there's this, you know, a significant, like, uh, storyline that uh, that talks about what Voldemort was like when he was a young boy, when he was a young wizard, and how he kind of came to be. And um, and there's an interaction between Harry Potter, the main character, and his um, mentor, who's a, a the headmaster of their wizard school. <laughs> just talking gibberish. It's when, I, when I say all these words out loud, they sound silly. Um, but um, 
uh, so uh, he's talking to the head of their wizard schools guy, a professor named Dumbledore. Dumbledore knew uh, uh, Voldemort when he was a boy, when he was a student, and uh, and Harry said, you know, did you know even then? And Dumbledore says, you know, did I know that uh, you know the, the young boy that I was teaching was going destined to be you know a mass murderer, basically, you know, the the the, the most evil wizard in in history? Uh, uh, no, I didn't know that, but there were signs even then, right? So you know, you can. Uh, sometimes you can only like sort of see that in hindsight. You know, someone could become something bad, and then you can look back and say like, "Oh yeah, I saw signs of that before." Right, and then two things that I've heard you know, about children and that kind of thing, and, and one was in my religious school teacher. How many times adults come back to you and they say, "Oh my God, it was so awful. I really saw it." Right. And, and my friend Sarah would always say, "But I knew you would mention it." You know? Right, right. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. And the other thing when I was also teaching him when I'm a principal that I had said, you better teach that one well because he's either going to be a really productive citizen or end up in jail. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. you know he has the potential to do either, either mm. thing. And I think maybe that's true, that there is that potential depending on experiences or, or yeah. education or whatever. A lot of smart people do it. That's right. I mean, and it was true. I mean, you could tell from some of them that they really were good. Yeah. Oh, right. One way or the other. Right. Intelligence isn't necessarily a predictor, unfortunately, of of moral character, right? Um, uh, So what what I think this is proposing is that, uh, is that, you know, uh, certain people, it's, it's possible to tell the end of a person by their beginning, you know, by, you know, the, how, how a person will turn out based on how they are, uh, early on. You know, so this saying, you know, about the thorns is saying, you know, even though a thorn bush is not so thorny when it's a young bush, uh, you, it's still like, you could see that thorns are developing, right? Um, so even when a thorn bush is like very, you know, very young, it still has like little kind of like thornlings. In it, right? So that uh, so that you'll know it's going to be a thorn bush eventually. Um, now I think that you know if, if like Ed Mullen was here, is uh, you know into botany. Uh, Harry, you're you're somewhat into botany, uh, gardening, etc. You might be able to. There might be things that are you know very beautiful plants when they're young plants that get to be ugly or vice versa. Things that are you know um, there, there are. You know, before it blossoms flowers, right, uh, uh, um, a rose bush probably just looks like a thorn bush. You know, so it's, I think that there are ways of arguing against the, the premise of this midrash. But the premise, anyway, is that you can tell the end of something by its beginning. You can tell the end of a, of a youth. Uh, you can tell a, a youth's adulthood what they're going to be like as an adult by how they are as, as children. And so then it's saying the same thing about the world, right? Um, the The... Uh, the prophet says that the world is going to be astonishingly empty, right? And uh, and so the world is created in that way so as to uh, 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 indicate how the world is going to end up. Um, now, if you want to, uh, Franklin mentioned, uh, I don't know if you looked closely at it, uh, the, the, you know, the, uh, the, the note uh, down at the bottom of the page, number four. Uh, which it gives the context of this verse from Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is uh, prophesying uh, the destruction of the land of Israel. Jeremiah was a, a, a prophesied uh, largely uh, during the period of time before the Babylonian uh, invasion of, of Judah 
uh, and subsequent destruction of Judah and, and the temple. Um, so Jeremiah prophesies, uh, I, I saw the mountains and behold, they were trembling and all the hills had crumbled. I saw and behold, there was no man and all the birds of the heavens had moved away. I saw and behold, the fertile field had become a wilderness and all its cities had been decimated. Right? So in other words, the, the, what, what Jeremiah prophesized there is that is that basically the Babylonians are going to lay waste to Judah. Nothing is going to be there anymore. Um, you know, so, uh, 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 so what this is, what this is saying is that, you know, so that, that, um, uh, that God created the world in that way, you know, unformed and void at the beginning to show how it was going to end up. <laughs> uh, well, so that's good, right? So the, the, this Midrash clearly doesn't uh, picture, you know, the clearly doesn't picture the Zionist uh, movement moving back into the land of Israel and, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, planting trees and, you know, things like that, uh, you know, uh, making the desert bloom. And, uh, well, maybe maybe 2,000 years is the same as not. Right. We started it. I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, it's also, it's also, it wasn't even true then, right? I mean, you know, so yeah, I mean, what Jeremiah predict, it's hard to know if Jeremiah actually prophesied this or it was written after the destruction or already happened, but, um, uh, um, but, you know, when, 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 you know, what Jeremiah is describing here is partially true. I mean, the Babylonians did destroy Judah and exile, uh, expel a lot of the population, um, but it's not as though, you know, uh, they, they expelled everybody from the land. It's not as though nobody was living there anymore, or, you know, uh, and, um, and it's, it's certainly the ones who left forgot who they were. Right. And, uh, and it's also not as though, and Rabbi Berechia would certainly know this, uh, that, you know, that the exiles then returned to Judah 50 years later, or some of them at least, and, uh, and, and rebuilt Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple and, and so on. Um, you know, so, um, so it's an interesting midrash in that way because it's, it's, you know, it's not the, uh, 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 it's it's not the end of the thing, right? Um, but it does say that 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 initial destruction was, you know, a, a, a major cataclysm. Um, we can keep on looking in the note if we want. Or when Jeremiah spoke of the land, he intended a dual meaning. He saw a vision of the land of Israel's desolation at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and this vision called to mind the primeval voidness of the land when it was first created. Um, what is the what is the midrash's point in noting that the first stage of creation was a model of our future misfortune? This is, I think, the real question. Yefet Toar, commentator, suggests that it did so as a warning against moral complacency. One should never view the threat of a punishment for sin as something abstract and remote. On the contrary, it's always close at hand. For desolation is the earth's original in a sense, natural condition. It's only our good deeds that keep the world thriving and that counter any tendency the earth has to return to its roots of desolation and emptiness. Right, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like the, um, the, 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 
in physics the law of uh, of entropy, right? All things tend toward uh, um, chaos or disorder, um, and so what what that means is that uh, if we want things to maintain their order, I mean it's true in my house even. I don't need to go to the laws of physics, right? Um, <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I was like this. I was like this also as a kid. You know, my mom would tell me to make my bed in the morning, and I'd say, you know, "What's the point? It's just going to get right. It's just going to get unmade anyway, right?" Um, what? It must be a god thing. What? <laughs> you had that problem too. Yeah. Um, you know, so this this idea that right that the that um, you know the, the 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 earth began as being unformed and void. It's in some ways its natural state to be unformed and void, right? And uh, what Nebuchadnezzar does is just kind of like like make things the way they once were. So, and the reason, at least according to the prophets and rabbinic tradition, that that the destruction happened in the first place was that uh, that the people had abandoned God. Right, and so I think the argument then is, you know, if you um, if you want the earth to not return back to its original state, you have work to do. Anything else? Anybody want? What's that? Deep thoughts. Um, all right, should we go on? Okay, more astonishing emptiness. Uh, page two, so you can skip over the Hebrew page. Uh, Nancy, you want to keep, keep on going? Phrase Tadu translated here as astonishingly empty, can also be rendered in astonishment and dismay. And then Josh explains the verse according to this latter meaning. By the way, you know, the, to say that the the phrase "tohu vavohu" is astonishingly empty, it seems to me is a um, a liberal translation, right? Because if you look at it, you know, just grammatically, where right, you have two phrases uh, and a conjunction, right? Conjunction, yeah. Um, and, you know, so um, uh, so the, right, astonishment and dismay seems grammatically speaking to be more more a, a closer translation. Uh, although I'm not sure where they're getting tohu as astonishment. Um, it's an interesting translation of the word. It's the poetic translation. Yeah. Dismay is interesting too. Disorder is, I think, probably closer for. Nothingness. Yeah. Time. 
that while the upper beings are sustained by the radiance of the divine presence, the lower ones, if they do not toil, do not eat. Hmm. What, so what, what is that Midrash saying? Yeah. What are the upper beings? What are the lower beings? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The you know so the upper realm is heaven, right? The lower realm is earth, right? The upper beings are the angelic well, hosts. What we got right now is darkness and water. Well, if you remember back in the in in uh, some of the trend, some of the commentaries on Brishi Bar Elohim Hashemayva Aretz. Uh, there were conversations there about God having created uh, the up, you know, Shemaim being heaven, right? Not not the sky, right? But the up, the heavenly realms, and Aretz is the earthly realms, like the lower realms, right? So, uh, so what um, so what it's saying here is that when God created Shemaim, right? God created a you know like a whole thing. You know, everything was like the way it was supposed to be, right? And when God created Aretz, Aretz starts off as Tohu Vavohu, right? Is a uh, um, is like unformed and, and void, right? And the and the and the Earth is like Tohu Vavohu is is like really confused by this. Looks up, right, and says the heavens are are per, all set up. You know, there, there's there's you know there's seventy virgins. There's you know whatever it is up there, right? It's all you can eat buffet. All you can eat buffet. <laughs> Right, it's like a red lobster up there. Um, what? It's a Catskill. The food here is so, the food here is terrible and in such small portions. Um, so, um, uh, right, and so the Earth's looking up and like surprised at this, right? Because like on on Earth, it's just you know whatever smoky rocks or something, right? And um, uh, and, and, and says, you know, uh, like, you know, nobody up there has to like do anything to make anything happen. Everything is set up and it's beautiful and perfectly fine. But down here, uh, you know, obviously there's going to be work that has to be done for the earth to be anything meaningful or substantial. Uh, it seems to me actually that that, uh, really kind of, uh, dovetails nicely with, with the, the interpretation we looked at of the previous Midrash, right? That the kind of natural state of the earth is unfold, you know, is, is astonishing emptiness, right? And, uh, and it requires, uh, the, the work of the, of creation, the work of humanity to, uh, to, to make it into something that it is not originally. Right, and that if we don't do what we're supposed to do, uh, then it will return back to its original state. Um, that seems to be a similar kind of thing here, right? Is that you know the, the Earth may not be happy about that, right? In this midrash, um, but that's sort of what it's saying is that in this realm, uh, it requires it requires toil and work to make something of the uh, of the Earth. Otherwise, it's just going to always be um, astonishing emptiness. Um, I also think about that, um, you know, I, I lament sometimes that, uh, that, that the most we ever, uh, recite out loud of the Shema is the first and third paragraph of the Shema and not the second. And I think that there are really two reasons that we don't recite the second. The first is because it just adds length to the, it's a longer paragraph and adds length to the service. So that's one reason. That's, let's call that the pragmatic reason. And then there's the theological reason, the philosophical reason, right? Because that second paragraph of the Shema says, if you don't observe the commandments 
uh, or if you do observe the commandments, God will make the rains fall when you know in, in their season, and you'll right, you'll have beautiful crops, whatever, right? Uh, but if you don't, right, uh, you'll per- you'll you'll swiftly perish from the face of the earth, right? And so theologically, it's kind of problematic, right? Because um, what kind of kind of uh, because. You know, it's like, okay, you know, like God's really going to make the rains fall if I keep Shabbos, you know? Um, but if you think, but the way I like to think about that passage, if you think about it, not so literally, but just like take like a little bit of a metaphorical step back. So what it's saying is that the, the, the Torah kind of lays out uh, uh, what we what we have to do to, um, to, to, uh, to make the world function the way it's supposed to function. Um, and, uh, and if we don't do those things, um, then we do live in a world of, of like, you know, uh, of, of darkness and chaos and, uh, and, and I think that that also applies environmentally too. I think that the Torah has, um, a, you know, a significant threat in it that says that human beings are supposed to be the stewards of the planet, right? Um, and uh, it has lots of environmental uh, conditions and laws about how we're supposed to treat the earth. Uh, and if we don't do those things, the rains won't fall in their season and they won't, you know. So I think that there are ways of looking at that that are actually not so theologically problematic, that are actually, I think, kind of accurate descriptions of, of reality, right? Not necessarily a punishment, but a cause and effect, yeah, a consequence. Kind of practical, like, right. right? I mean... Right, not the you know the punishment. It's not that the punishment for observing the commandments is that the earth is going to be uh, you know astonishingly empty. It's that the consequence of not observing the commandments is right. that the earth is going to be astonishingly empty. I try to talk about that when, especially when kids have their bar mitzvah portion is in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy has a lot of passages that are kind of like that one, and. I say to them, like, like, what's the difference between punishment and consequence? I think parents have ruined kids because of this. It's like, I, I, like we, we don't want to, we don't want to, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to use the, like, like, punishment sounds too harsh, so we use, like, so we use the term consequence, but then kids basically equate punishment and consequence, but they're actually two different things. Like, I think consequence is the, is the, the natural, uh, outcome of your action. Your action, right? Which could be positive or could be negative. It was a negative in our house. It was, it was suffering. It is in my house too. I'm guilty of that. I'm as guilty of this as anybody. The consequence of that is going to be that they're going to assume right. the consequence well, of punishment is the same way. thing. What? You were trained that way. Yeah. yeah. You were raised that way. I look at that second paragraph of the Shema as the parental paragraph. It's like someone waving that's, that's right. their that yeah. you know. Well, and I think, and I think that's why I think that's part of why it can be theologically um, uh, uh, problematic, right? Because not everybody wants, not everybody can relate to the idea of God as the scolding father, right? Um, yeah, but you know, but it's a, thinking about it that way uh, makes it all the more important in a sense, right? Because. Yeah, okay, I love the first, the first paragraph is great, you know, it's all about love and who can fight against, who can argue with that, you know, God loves you, you love God, uh, everybody's, rem- happy. everybody's happy, remember how much you love God all the time, right, right? it's, it's all good, right, and, but, yes, but the truth is, like, like, my kids know that I love them, um, uh, in part because of how much I hug and kiss them. But in part because of the boundaries I set up for them and the consequences they have if they violate those boundaries. They may not be able to articulate the fact that that's a demonstration of my love for them. But 
but but for sure they know that it is. Right. Right. Um, so you when have they get to in the thirties, they'll realize. The, when they get in the thirties, they realize. But I think in, I think intuitively people they know that it is like the kids know that the that the that bound that that boundaries are an expression of of love and consequences are an expression of love. We don't have to wait until your kids get big to have the phone call that I got one time. Mom, you're not going to believe what I just said to some kid here. <laughs> You don't do this, you'll have to suffer. <laughs> right. <laughs> I vowed I would never uh, say that. It's, 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 ama- <laughs> it's amazing how much I uh, uh, insisted I would never <laughs> be my parents. And then the moment I had kids, all of a sudden I became yeah, my parents. Yeah. Yeah. My, my daughter used to call me up when her youngest was... <laughs> So first of all, I mean, it's interesting about that second paragraph of the Shema because I hadn't thought of it that way in terms of, um, you know, connecting, connecting to this idea of, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Like I have it in my head and I can't get it out of my mouth. The idea that that if we want order, we have to create order, mm-hmm. right? That the natural state of things is inertia, right? Mm-hmm. And if we if we want to eat, <laughs> if we want bread from the earth, right, and things to eat, that we have to go out there and plant seeds and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and make them grow, right? Um, that nothing, you know, if we do nothing, we get nothing, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know... In a way, that's just, you know, it seems to me that that's just a way of instructing us to order our lives, right? That it's the same thing about about life, right? <laughs> right? If you do nothing, you get nothing, right? right? If you want, sure. um, you know, the natural tendency is towards inertia. <laughs> so if you, you know, if you... If you don't educate yourself, if you don't cultivate relationships, if you don't, do you know what I'm saying? If you want an order to your life, you have to make that order to your life. It's not going to happen. Things aren't set up for you. Right. Um, yeah, that's just interesting. I just hadn't, particularly that second paragraph, I hadn't thought of it that way before. And it feels a lot less, um, what's the word? Uh, parochial or scolding <laughs> when you look at it that right, way, you know, right. and particularly when you tie it back to this idea, I just think it's it's interesting, right? That the natural tendency of things is inertia, right? Well, it's, you know, it's uh, right. It's uh, it's it's saying, you know, that, that it's like it, the the whole premise of that second paragraph of the Shema is is causation, right? Right. The Hayatim Shema Tishmu Al Mitzvotai, right? If you listen, right, then this is going to happen, right? If you don't observe it, then 
So it's uh, you, when we were at the, I, I took our tenth grade tenth graders to the hall to the um, DC Holocaust Museum yesterday, and uh, one of the things that they were selling in their gift shop, which I like, I was so tempted. They had like a few different permutations of it. One like sticker, one like card magnet. I was like thinking about getting all of them, some of them, but it was a. Uh, um, it says, "What you do matters." It's an amazing statement, right? Especially the Holocaust Museum to make. They, by, by the way, also have like a whole section there on on the Syrian civil war, which was interesting. They had it. Um, so, um, you know, so, and I said to the kids, I said, you know, so we spent some time talking about that. You know, that's literally you know, what does that mean? That what? What? Did everybody go? Yeah, yeah. It's just like all three of them. Yeah. Um, like, uh, you know, what, you know the, the, that notion of what you do okay. matters. And also, the opposite is also true. Like, what you don't, what you don't do, do matters. Ma- yeah, absolutely. Except for this, the first slide. <laughs> he gets uh, the right. Yeah, right. So, listen, I think uh, to... to people go through life like that somehow. It seems that things just happen for them, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I was... Um, one of the things that was a, a memorable moment from the J Street conference was uh, Bernie Sanders was talking about um, the like Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia just bought like a fifty million dollar yacht. Oh, I heard right? that. Yeah. Um, but you know, but like, but but can't uh, you know? His argument was um, that like if you know if the Arab world wanted to, they could you know, help make significant progress in the peace process. They could support Palestinian infrastructure. They could do, you know, do all these things, you know? Um, so, right. So that's, a, you know, so he said is like, you know, yeah, right. I know. He's, you know, it's like, you know, it's so, it was something like, you know, um, like the Palestinians need, the Palestinians need, you know, $10 million worth of medical supplies in Gaza, you know? So like, uh, you know, for one fifth the cost of your right. new yacht that you don't need, right, um, or something like that. Uh, so, uh, so it's like, okay, so there are people in the world that you know, like through no uh, no no action yeah, of their own, know. have you know, have uh, basically have it made in the shade and can do whatever they want, you know. Um, but probably very few people like that. Um, and it's and it's also probably not true, right? If the if that if that crown prince of Saudi Arabia, you know, literally did nothing uh, all day long, um, it's conceivable that he would no longer be the prince of Saudi Arabia, right? If he literally did nothing, including you know, didn't like pay the soldiers that you know hold the regime in place in Saudi Arabia. Uh, uh, meet with American government officials to like curry their favor and things like whatever you know. So does stuff right? Uh, it's not literally doing nothing. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there's anybody that's actually like that servant that just gets to eat well, with royal treasury. With the slave is still a slave. Right. Yeah. So what, the slave got got to do something as a slave, right? So. Okay. Um, you want to keep going, Nancy? The Midrash now presents the second parable. Okay, the second parable. An analogy can be drawn to a king who bought two maid servants for himself, both with the same bill of sale and at the same price. For one, he decreed that she 
not be made to budge from the palace, and for the other he decreed banishment. The latter maid sat by astonished and dismayed. She exclaimed, we were both acquired with the same bill of sale and at the same price, yet this one does not venture out nor budge from the palace, while for me the king has decreed banishment. Similarly, the earth sat by astonished and dismayed. It exclaimed, the upper and lower realms were created at the same time, yet the upper beings live eternally, while the lower ones ultimately die. Midrash concludes speaking for both sages. Therefore the verse says, And the earth was in astonishment and dismay, where the earth was astonished and dismayed at the seemingly unfair hand it was dealt. What do you find funny? Yeah, <laughs> you can take it and interpret that that way, but it's, yeah. I mean, you know, the heavens, eh? you that thing. Right, yeah. And go to him, whatever they do up there, they do. <laughs> and down here, yeah, we go through all the grief. Right, right. Um, uh, you know, it's, it, I mean, um, it's an interesting uh, parable, or an interesting analogy, that second one of, of, you know, one gets to live in the palace while the other gets has to be banished. And, uh, banished from the palace. Right, banished from the palace. Yeah. Um, that can work both ways. Explain how? Well, if, if the person who was kept in the palace uh, realized that perhaps the palace was not a palatial place, but a place of, in hell, <laughs> then being uh, kept there is not going to be a positive experience. And the other flip side is the, the one who is banished um, has the opportunity to do something else. Right. I think a little bit differently. I think the one that uh, living in the palace had all the benefits of the palace, didn't have to do anything, didn't have to work, uh, life was great. The one that was banished was really had, uh, had to work. Well, so is that is that uh, which which of those is um, which of those is a preferable state of things? Of this world, of this earth. <laughs> and like you know, given the choice between you know being in the palace, you know, have everything taken care of for you, uh, not having to work, not having any pain or suffering, uh, not dying, uh, versus living out in the uh, living out of the palace, uh, having you know ha- having to. You know, having to like, uh, you know, struggle to eat, struggle to survive. Uh, you have, you know, you have pain, you have suffering, you have loss, um, you have death. Uh, which of those is a is a preferable state of things? Let me put it that way. Obviously, the former. So what I would say is, yeah, okay. So, but um, I, 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 you could argue that. Both are mixed blessings. Yes. Right. I mean, you know, so in the one case, yeah, you have everything that's like set up for you. But on the other hand, um, there's purpose that's drawn out of uh, of, of struggle and of, of work, right? And uh, and and meaning that's made of it. Um, uh, uh, one of the one of the lines that I most remember from uh, something David Wolpe said. 
said, um, uh, only that which is precious, which goes away, or which is finite, right? So, um, so in other words, you know, like the, the um, you have no you have no significant moments in an infinite life. Um, uh, everything is every, every everything is uh, uh, everything is iterative, um, right? But in a, in a temporary life that has a beginning and an end, right? It, it's got an arc to it. It's got um, it, it's got moments of significance. It's got uh, uh, um, an opportunity uh, to uh, to, to uh, limited opportunity to make something meaningful, right? So there's there's benefit to living a mortal life too. Um, that you know that sort of you, you sort of like imagine. Well, wouldn't it be great to like you know have all the money I ever wanted, right? Um, and you know and, uh, and and all the resources I ever wanted, and to live forever. Right? All my needs are taken care of. Um, but I'm not so sure that's so heavenly, you know. Um, Right. right. <laughs> Another way of saying that is, you'll 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 be given the opportunity to try it at some point. Just that uh, I wonder if you really ought to be careful what you wish for. You know. Yeah. Death gives meaning to life. Right. Right. You know this. You know, it's uh, um. Uh, I, I mean, in, in some ways, you know, my conversation, I was very surprised in my conversation the other night. I did one of my encounter RVA sessions with a, a Lutheran minister and a Catholic priest. Um, and, uh, and I was surprised at the extent to which they did not see their traditions as otherworldly traditions. And they saw the, the significance and importance of, of, you know, the world here and now, um, as opposed to, you know, sort of doing everything for the sake of, 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 of heaven. What I drew from that is that, you know, life is precious, right? It's, it's finite and finite nature of it may be what makes it precious. But, you know, it, like, would you sacrifice, um, would you sacrifice, uh, life in this world for life, uh, eternal? And I think that, that they would say, and I think I agree with them that I'm not sure I would sacrifice life in this world for eternal life. That's interesting because I thought the premise Christianity was that you know if you sin, you are affecting the, the nature of the what comes later. Yeah. So how how the Catholic priest described said it was uh, she talked about hell, right? Hell is um, he quoted the Catechism. I'm going to get the quote wrong, but something like um, hell is the separation of a person from God. And so he said in that way, um, there are people who are living in hell right now, right? Who are in this world, who have deliberately chosen to separate themselves from God. Um, and, uh, you know, and so, so he doesn't believe that, you know, hell is a place that you go to after you die. Uh, I mean, it, it, it might also be that, right? But it's sort of a, a spiritual condition, um, that, uh, that, that also refers to the here and now. And so sin in that way is a, is a rupture in the relationship between you and God. Well, I like that thought. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, that, that's very, that, that sounds very Jewish, yes, I think. Exactly. Yeah. It, it does. Yeah. yeah. And that kind of surprised me too, honestly, this whole idea of, and Reverend Somerville also talked about that in your first, um, encounter RVA about building the kingdom of heaven on earth. Mm -hmm. And I just, yeah, 
I mean, to me, to me, that seems like a Jewish idea too. And I also, um, I also had thought of Christianity as being a lot more focused on the next world mm -hmm. than that. So that was surprising to me too. Yeah. I mean, even, even, uh, um, uh, David Dwight, um, uh, spoke in, in similar terms about, you know, about the, the, the purpose of life and the nature of, of, of heaven and hell. Uh, he, um, he, he did not see, um, uh, the, the purpose of Christianity or the purpose of faith as, you know, um, say, the, say the right, right, getting to the other side, yeah. you know, um, so does that mean they don't do the fire and brimstone, brimstone, <laughs> Uh, at, at least not, at I'm least not, at least not in St. Mary's Catholic I mean, I don't Church. Know anything, but that's, you know, that's the West End. It doesn't play to the West End crowd. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's You know, so in other words, you know, like given the given the choice between being an angel and being a human being, like I'm not sure I would I would um, I would I would make that choice. I would, I'm not sure I would I would choose the former over the latter. Um, that's I think one of the things that we that we do on Yom Kippur. We sort of like play act being angels um, and recognize that um, that. That that's only you know uh, that's only good for a day, and we don't really enjoy it all that much on that one day. You know? <laughs> well, and I think I mean I think there's you know there's the idea that um, in order to grow you need pain, right? There's no pain mm -hmm. without growth, sure. right? So it kind of seems to me that if you if you have you know, the, the life of the angel or, you know, life of any, the life of the sheltered slave, the life of the sheltered, um, handmaiden is ultimately a life of, of complacency mm -hmm. and of lack of self-awareness really. Right. right. Because if nothing is ever challenged, how can you ever right. have self-awareness or, or grow? Right. right. So, yeah, that's that's the other part of it. Uh, well, there's there's in a, in a in 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 a life without death, right? In an infinite life, there's no growth. There's right. no change, right? There can't be. It's stagnant, right? No purpose, right? But my question is, you know, if you're if you're living that kind of life, you do you know, right? You don't know anything different, <laughs> right? So, well, yeah, I mean, I guess the same, the same could be true, uh, for, for our life also, right? So, you know, we, maybe we, maybe we prejudice, we prejudice mortal life because it's all we know. It's hard to imagine or fathom immortal Anything life. Anything else, right? Um, that's, 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 I think one of the, one of the challenges that people have, you know, with death itself is that, you know, because it's so hard for us to fathom what, what eternal life looks like, right? You know? Um, it, it just sort of it essentially seems to us that, uh, that the person's gone. Um, uh, but you know, the, but, but what death really is, is, um, a transition to a life that, that transcends space and time. Right. Um, which is something that we don't know yeah. how to imagine. Because we only know space and time. Well, if you knew the answer, you wouldn't be sitting there doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
right, right. Um, let's let's just quickly finish this uh, midrash so we can that next week we'll move on to the next one. So I'll, I'll just read it quickly. Um, midrash concludes speaking for both sages. Therefore, the verse says, and the earth was in astonishment and dismay. For the earth was astonished and dismayed at the seemingly unfair hand it was dealt. Uh, the Midrash presents a third parable. Uh, Rabbi Tanchuma said, An analogy can be drawn to a royal prince who was sleeping in a crib. As the prince slept, his nurse was standing by, apprehensive and anxious. Why? Because she knew that she was destined to receive punishment on account of the prince if any mishap should occur with him. Similarly, the earth... I know that feeling. Um, similar, <laughs> um, similarly, the, it's not the other way around. My wife would not get punished, but I would. Um, similarly, the earth foresaw that it was destined to be punished on account of man. As it was said to Adam, Accursed is the ground because of you. Therefore, the verse says, And the earth was in apprehension and anxiety. So this is another translation of Tovu. Apprehension and anxiety. Um... So okay, so the, the, it, it's uh, now giving us a, more context for the next uh, for the next so the first is the ground because of you. That mm-hmm. brings back all the negative connotations of the environment, mm-hmm. what's going on around us. That's in essence what happens. What we do? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, I never realized before, just this sort of a, a, a tangential, that uh, in the uh, Hall of Memory um, in the Holocaust Museum in D.C., um, there are two biblical quotes on the, on the, like, what do you call it, the freeze of the inside circle. One is Deuteronomy, uh, not the passage from the Shema, but the passage... Related to, to Passover, it's like you know, when, you know, when, when um, it's like you know, teach, uh, teach them. It's sort of like teach them diligently to your children, you know, so they don't forget. Um, but the other one is, um, where is your brother? Uh, uh, where is your brother? Behold, his blood cries to me from the ground. Right. Um, yeah. So it was so powerful, especially you know the way, going with that uh, with with the with the slogan that they have there of uh, you know what you do matters. That's right. Right. Um, it was because of you know came my my brother's keeper. Right. Um, you know, there was and the kids picked up on this a lot too. You know the thread and the museum of of what people you know in in Europe did do and didn't do. Um, but especially, like they were really taken with the with the wall of the of the righteous Gentiles and um, and, and Jewish resistance, um, which was something that like when I was first learning about the Holocaust and was first taken to the Holocaust Museum, like I don't think that was something that my teachers told me to focus on, you know, or I like really had a lot of consciousness of. Um, it always stayed. Yeah, so I do remember, I mean, there's certainly, there's a section uh, on, like, like the forest partisans, so I remember, like, the trees there, my first time visiting that museum. Um, I'm pretty sure they've always had the, the uh, wall of remembrance for, for righteous Gentiles. I just, I just don't remember, like, spending a lot of time thinking about it. In D.C. or in Jerusalem? Well, so they for sure have it in Jerusalem. Right. But, um, but they didn't always have it. Yeah. 
of the right. You know, they didn't have, always have the the right you know, passengers. First of all, they went through a process of gathering the facts and right doing a lot of research. I think learn all this. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember when the was first put up. In the fifties, but it certainly wouldn't. I mean, I can remember as a child in the fifties. I mean, there was nothing. There was, there was a whole desert everywhere, and the and the Yemenites had just been brought in, and they're the ones digging all the holes everywhere for ditches along roads and everything. I mean, it's from world. My favorite one that I saw yesterday was um, a bishop. Uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church on some Greek island that the Nazis had uh, occupied, demanded that he uh, make a list of all the Jews on the island and turn it over to the Nazis. So he took a piece of paper, wrote his name in big letters, and said, here's your list of the Jews on the island. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. I want to be that bishop. What the Danes did. It was the Danes. The reverse of what the Danes did? No, the Danes. What, what, the king of Denmark was wearing a yeah, the, 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 the Nazis demanded, uh, I forgot how, what, what it was, whether they demanded the names or, uh, and the Danish government came back and said all Danes are Jewish or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I but I know that they demanded the armbands and the king wore the armband also. That might be in that number of the stars. Been a long time to that book. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, why don't we stop for today? 